0: Good job. Amen. Amen. They need to play while I preach like they do at the big churches on TV, you know? Gary can do it, buddy. I hear that roll on the piano. Yes, sir. Could can preach like T.D. Jakes, then. Yes. Or somebody might need to pray before we start tonight. Um, have any of y'all ever participated in at any level, whether you coached or parented or just spectated in uh, children's t-ball, baseball, softball? Isn't that the craziest, most chaotic thing in the world? I mean, it's a lot of fun, but I don't know if it would necessarily count as baseball. You know, you've got the shortstop, he's out there chasing butterflies. You've got the first baseman, and his parents think that he's going to be the next A-Rod, and he's eating dirt. Uh, the third baseman's picking his nose, and the whole outfield's crying. And it's just chaos as kids are going in every single direction possible. If you've ever been a part of that or seen that or coached that or had one of your little ones be a part of that, one thing those kids are never going to do until they mature, until they learn the fundamentals of the game and let's just be honest until natural selection takes over and kind of calls the weak away from the herd, one thing that they're never going to actually do is play as a team. No matter what their uniforms might say, no matter what uh the the hat may say, They're never going to play as a team until they learn how to get over their individual distractions and come together as one. And sometimes, if we're going to be real honest tonight, it seems like church is like a little league t-ball game, don't it? People are just going in every single direction, distracted by a million different things, and unable to come together over the few things that really, really matter. Sometimes churches that should be the one place of unity and harmony and healing in the world become the place where there's the most discord and the most division. Maybe the reason some of you ended up at Sharon Heights to begin with is because you were trying to get away from a war zone in another church. and You were just trying to keep your head down and survive and find high ground. It could be that some of you are engaged in the middle of church conflict now. You haven't realized it. But in your heart over the past few weeks or months or, God forbid, years, you've become tribal. You've become suspicious. Maybe you've just become mean. Today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul deals with a church that is divided. And here's what he's going to tell us tonight. That divided churches are made up of distracted Christians. And the only way that churches can ever be unified is is when they refocus on the cross that brings them together. We're going to see that today in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. So if you have your Bible and you're able, I want to ask you to stand with me. If you can, while we read the Word of God tonight, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 10. If you need to keep your seat, that's certainly okay. We're going to read down through chapter 2 and verse number 5. Paul writes and says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. not with words of eloquent wisdom, let the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God." Now, as I told you last week and as we are going to see in weeks to come, the church of Corinth is a church that is full of problems. This is a church where people would think nothing about going to visit a prostitute on Saturday night and then going to church on Sunday morning. This is a church where people would leave their Lord's Supper services hungover. This is a church where people are so selfish that they are lawyering up over every possible offense and taking one another to court. This is a church that is a mess. But the very first problem that the Apostle Paul is going to deal with in this church is the problem of division that he begins analyzing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. But I want you to think for a moment. If you were the one who was going to straighten this church out, is this where you would start? Of all the problems that they're dealing with in Corinth, is this the one... I mean, don't you think you at least want everybody to sober up and then you could get to work on some of this other stuff? Why does Paul start with division? I think there are two reasons, both of which are important. The first, I think Paul really understands that they're never going to be able to tackle the other problems that they have unless they do so together. They've got to come together to work on the other issues and the other challenges. But I think maybe more instructive than that, I think Paul wants them to see that even though there are different problems, there is the same root issue. And the same root problem is a toxic case of individualism that has infected this church. The reason this church is divided is because the individuals in the church have made the church all about me. These are people that worshipped at the altar of self and wanted everything in the church to cater to them. They wanted the church to be structured in such a way that they would be platformed, that they would be seen. The church is not about worshipping Jesus anymore. The church is not about serving others anymore. The church is about me, my expectations, my preferences, the things that I want, the things that I feel. And who may agree or disagree with me? The fact is, folks, that today we are raised from the time that we are born to be a me-first kind of people. We are taught to defend our rights, demand our rights, think about what we want, think about how we can be served, and to think about what suits our taste. And it's inevitable that some of that attitude bleeds over into the way that we think about our church and our relationships in our church. We think about ourselves as consumers, who are purchasing a brand. And if the brand satisfies our tastes, then we will be happy, loyal customers. But if they ever change the recipe of the brand, then look out. Because then we are going to be like an online reviewer and we are going to start ranking everything from four to five stars and just say, you know, it really just does not satisfy me the way that it ought to. And when we start to think of ourselves as consumers who are buying a different brand, it becomes inevitable from that that we start to be suspicious of people who are part of a little different brand than we are. Why don't they like the same things I like? Why don't they have the same taste that I have? Are those people even saved? That's the attitude that Paul is dealing with here in First Corinthians chapter number 1. And what he's going to do is he's going to talk about the division in the church and the distraction that is the cause of this division, and how the only cure for it is a renewed focus in Jesus, as he simply tells the church, listen, you've got to understand that you will only stand together, and if you are divided, you will fail. So I'm going to preach to you about that tonight. As a church, we need to know that if we are divided, we will fall. And Paul points this out in two important thoughts here. The first we see is Paul revealing the problems in the church. Verse number 10 Through verse number 17, Paul reveals the problems in the church. He pulls the lid off of the church of Corinth and he shows them what's inside. And y'all, it is not pretty. He says here that this is a church that has division among them. And then he says in verse 11 that there is quarreling among them. The word division is particularly interesting because it is the Greek word that we get our word schism from or schismatic from. And it means, you know, to divide or to separate. But what's really interesting is that that Greek word for schism that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 1, it's a word that has lent itself into the world of psychiatry for the word schizophrenic. A schizophrenic person is somebody who is detached from reality because they are hearing competing voices and competing thoughts that present a competing reality that seems more real than actual reality. And Paul's saying, that's where your church is right now. He's saying that your church has mental illness because you are divided from what is real and from what matters. And we should understand today that when a church is divided, that is a church that is suffering from mental illness. When a Christian is divisive, that is a Christian who is suffering from a spiritual kind of mental illness as they are separated from the reality of what God has done for them in Christ. Jesus said to His disciples in John 13, 35, He said, By this will all men know that you are My disciples, that you have love one for another. Not because you come and sit in a church service and carry a Bible. Not because you wear nice clothes and because you don't cuss. The, people, the way people are going to know you've been around Jesus is because you love others the way Jesus loved. Paul is saying there's a real problem in your church. But what was the problem? What was the cause of their division? Well, as Paul goes forward, you'll find out in verse number 12 that the problem is not really a bad thing, but it's a good thing that the church has overemphasized and made an ultimate thing. And the problem, is that, the problem is their attraction to preachers that they've heard over the years. Paul says what's happened is you are lining up behind the personalities and leadership styles and preaching of different pastors that you have had over the years. And you've said that you have an appetite for Paul or you have an appetite for Peter but not for Paul or you have an appetite for Apollos and you can take or leave the other guys. And you can kind of understand how this would happen if you know much about these characters in the Bible there would be people who would come along and they would say, I love the preaching of Paul. I mean, Paul was preaching in revival there at Corinth when our church started, and that's where God saved me, and I love to hear Paul. I love to hear him present an argument, and I love to hear him present truth. Nobody could ever preach better than Paul. I am of Paul. Then there were other people that said, man, y'all need to get over Paul because Peter's where it's at. Evidently, at some point, Peter had been through Corinth. They said, we like that in-your-face, rough-and-rowdy style of preaching that Simon Peter brings. He's down to earth, and he brings it, and that's what the kids today are after anyway, and we like it. And then there were some that would say, no, look, y'all got it all wrong, because Apollos, he's the one who can lift us up to greater and greater heights of rapture with his sweeping oratory and his masterful style. And we listen to Apollos, and we think, man, this is what Jesus must be all about. And then there was another group that tried to jesus the whole thing, and they say, well, you know, we are of Jesus. And I don't think these are people that are really trying to calm the division. These are people that are trying to look more spiritual than everybody else. Well, you think you're of Paul. We are of Jesus. Paul says, no, you're smart. like nobody likes you. Here's the issue of what's happening in the church of Corinth. Listen carefully. What they are doing is they are drawing the borders of fellowship somewhere other than Jesus. If you don't like the preacher that I like, then you're not one of me. If you don't like the music that I would prefer, you're not, you're not one of us. If you don't march to the beat of our drum, then you simply do not belong. And whether we want to admit it or not, we do the exact same thing, don't we? We draw borders on anything and everything other than Jesus. And this is why churches are divided. Because we say, I am of this tribe, I am of that tribe, and we become tribal in the way that we think. We do it in when it comes to music, don't we? I, I, I'm traditional, or I, I'm contemporary, and I wonder about these people that don't enjoy that good hoedown rendition of I saw the light. I wonder if they even know the Lord. We do it on the basis of age. We think the church should do more for the younger people. Why aren't they doing more to attract young families? Why are they they pay, paying? Good gracious. I'm gonna die of a heart attack one day up here preaching. Or I'm gonna die doing what I love. let me take a deep breath here. Now we say, well, you know, I, 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 why don't we do more for the younger? Why don't we do more for the older people? This is a church of senior citizens. Why invest more? The reason we don't is because of coronavirus. We can't do anything. That's why. But that's the way we think. This church is for people like me. And since y'all are laughing and having a good time, let me say something that's going to be real just hard for some of you to hear. And you need to hear it, since Paul is real specific in names. Name, I'm going to too. Some of y'all are Jason people. Some of y'all, are brother Terry people. And some of y'all are Jesse people. And I like y'all the most. But listen, what we do, <laughs> what we do, is we take the people that God has used to bless us. The music God has used to bless us, the programs God has used to bless us and say, this is where we are, and anybody that sees it a little bit different, they're wrong, and we don't have any use for them, and I wonder if they've even read the Bible. We draw the wrong borders, and then as we become tribal, we become protective, and we become territorial over what is ours, expecting all the attention and all the resources to come to our tribe. We become dangerous because we don't trust people who aren't in our tribe. We feel like we have to defend ourselves from the other tribe. And we certainly aren't ever going to serve people in the other tribe because they are not like us. I like the way Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, said it. You can see this quote. He said, We become too possessive of small things and too casual about great ones. We become too defensive for ourselves and ignore God. We talk of love, but we too often give ourselves over to hate, even in church. He's right, isn't he? Let me just tell you something from the Bible. It doesn't say it this way, but I think it's a necessary inference. Church don't have to be like high school. It don't have to be full of drama. People can love in a supernatural way, unite with people who are different, and serve those who are unlike them. And Paul would emphasize this, right? He asks in verse 13, Is Christ divided? Is, is Christ divided? Is the body of Christ separated into different segments? You think about your own human body. With all the parts and pieces that make you you, it's still all one, right? And if you take your body parts and you start putting your body parts in all kinds of different places, what you've got is not a body. What you've got is a true crime podcast. Paul says Christ is not divided. Then he asks this question. This is getting real, real in their hearts. He says... Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Listen, it was not Bill Gaither who died on the cross for you. It was not Hillsong Worship that came out of the empty tomb for you. But sometimes we get so focused on the things that we want and the things that we like, not sins necessarily, but blessings God has given us, that we think more of those blessings than we do Jesus. Paul says, were you baptized in my name? No. No. You weren't baptized in the name of the old-time way, and you weren't baptized in the name of contemporary worship. You weren't baptized in the name of your favorite preacher. You were baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And we, as God's people, the Bible says in Ephesians 4, have many gifts, and many different backgrounds, and many personalities, and many preferences. But we have one God, and we have one faith, and we have one baptism, and we have one hope, and we have one calling, and one Spirit, and one Lord. But when anything other than that, when anything other than Jesus comes, becomes more essential to our identity than Jesus, when we start drawing our value from those other things, we are going to be distracted. If you are in a place where you are separated from your church family tonight, the reason is because something has become more important to you than Jesus. And Paul says, by God's grace, I will never do that because he says something unusual in verses 15 through 17, or 14 through 17, he says, Listen, I'm glad I didn't even baptize any of y'all. He mentions a handful of people that he did baptize, but he says, I'm glad I didn't baptize you. Can you imagine a preacher saying, I'm glad I didn't baptize y'all? Do you know why he's saying that? It's not because he's embarrassed by how they turned out, but it's because he did not want his experiences with them to distract them from Jesus. And you can understand how that would work, can't you? Because if somebody had been baptized by the Apostle Paul, you know that's all they would ever talk about. You know it's the only thing that would matter to them. And Paul said, I'm glad I didn't become a distraction. You can just imagine what it'd be like. Hey, Jeff, man, this is a beautiful day out here today. Boys, I'll tell you what, this reminds me of the weather, the day Paul baptized me. Have I ever told y'all that story? Yeah, brother, you've told us. Well, let me tell you what I felt and what i seen, the day Paul baptized me. Who baptized y'all? It wasn't Paul, was it? Paul says, I'm glad that I would not become a distraction because he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but he sent me to preach the gospel. And not in a way that would ever put the attention on me, but in a way that would always put the attention on Jesus. And he says the same thing at the beginning of chapter 2, doesn't he? He said, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech and with eloquent wisdom and with my own abilities or capabilities, but he said, I came in weakness and fear and much trembling so that you would hear the message of God your Savior crucified in the power of God the Spirit. Paul says, that was my heart for you. So he reveals the problems of the church. But beginning in verse 18, Paul is going to refocus on the priority of the cross. Yeah, you're divided. Here's how you come back together. And he begins by taking them through this message of the cross that is foolishness to the world that is the power of God revealed in the world. Now he begins in verse number 18 by saying that the word of the cross, it is folly to those who are perishing. And in the ancient world it was. And I think you have to begin to wrap your mind around this to understand why the Corinthians were divided about pastors and their personalities the way that they were. To begin with, you have to understand how offensive the message of the cross was in the first century. To think of worshiping somebody who was crucified, who was spit upon, who was alone and embarrassed and shamed and died that horrible, excruciating death That was unthinkable to most people in the first century world. The cross was so offensive and crucifixion was so disgusting that people couldn't imagine associating with a cross. In fact, the very, very first piece of art that has come into history by archaeology that depicts anything about Christianity, I think we've got a picture of it maybe, is called the Alexaminos Graffito. And you probably can't make out exactly what you're looking at here, but... There's some writing at the bottom. On the left is a man who his name is supposed to be Alexa Minos. And in the middle is a picture of Jesus on the cross. But they've drawn Jesus with the head of a horse. And this is not praising Christianity. This is not praising Alexa Minos, the Christian. But this is mocking Alexa Minos. And whoever, whoever engraved this is, forgive me for being crass, but the image that is supposed to be presented is, look at this fool Alexa Minos, worshipping this jackass who got himself crucified. That's the attitude that people had about Jesus. And so the Corinthians said, we don't want to be associated with that. We don't want to be embarrassed like that. We don't want to be ridiculed and thought of like poor Alex Aminos. We we want to be smart. We want to be capable. We want to be influential. We want to be important. And this was a deep part of their culture. You see, the, the, the Corinthians being so downstream from Greek culture, they were used to people thinking in terms of their favorite philosophers. Now, it may have been a long time since you've sat through a world history class or philosophy class, if you ever had the extreme misfortune of doing that, but you probably remember, and you can read the Bible and read about the Epicureans, and you can read the Bible and read about the Stoics, who were you know these devoted students of Zeno. And most of us know about Pythagoras, who was a philosopher who taught us how to figure out the size of a triangle, Right. Those people took that stuff very seriously. So much so that in ancient Greece, the followers of the philosopher Pythagoras, they actually went to war to defend the things that he taught them. And this was their way of saying, Hey, look, I understand the world because I'm a follower of Pythagoras. I am connected. I am smart. I am powerful. I deserve respect. And they were treating these preachers that came through Corinth in the exact same way. But Paul is going to say to them here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Listen, God in the gospel does not demand that we be important. He does not demand that we be impressive. In fact, God in the gospel has demonstrated His commitment to embarrass the wisdom of the world and to humble the most powerful of the world. God does not need us to be powerful. He does not need us to be right. He does not need us to be wise. He needs us and asks us to look to a Savior who died in weakness, who died in foolishness, because it's there at the cross where God displays His wisdom for the world. In fact, Paul says in verse number 19, quoting Isaiah 29, 14, that God is committed to embarrassing the wisdom of the world. God had determined that man would never know Him by His own power. God God determined that men would never discern who He was by their own wisdom. And so even though the Greeks may seek wisdom and the Jews may demand power in the form of signs, God at the cross offered a glimpse of His power. He offers a glimpse of His wisdom. In this Savior that died with nails in His hands and a crown of thorns on his head. In this Savior that the powerful and the wise spit upon and then rejected. In this Savior who died alone in the darkness God said you look to him and that's where you see the power and the wisdom of God. You say how in the world can this message of a broken Nazarene carpenter how can that really show us the power of God? Here's why. Because man in his power is able to give another man a heart transplant but he cannot give man a new Heart, but you take that same man with his same old heart and you humble him at the cross, and God will give him a new heart. Man and all of his power can take somebody from Florida and put him on the moon in a couple days, but man and his power cannot put a man in heaven. But you take that man and you send him to the cross, and God will wipe away his past that deserves hell, and God will give him a new future in glory. Friends, it's at the cross of the Lord Jesus where God took the death of His Son and used His death to bring life to the world. It is at the cross of the Lord Jesus where God used the devil at His most powerful to put Jesus on a cross so that through that cross He could destroy the work of the devil. It is at the cross of the Lord Jesus where God took the sin of men and crucified the Son of God so that that Son would save men from their sin. Paul said, if you want power look to the cross. If you want wisdom, look to the cross. Don't be embarrassed about it. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't be afraid to identify with Him because this is the message that God has used to save the world. Forget looking to your favorite preacher or your favorite southern gospel group to find your identity. Forget just going back to the good old days and thinking, man, if somebody didn't experience that, they missed out forever. Paul said go back to the cross because it's at the cross we find our hope. It's at the cross we find our value. It's in the cross we find our joy and our peace. And folks, based upon Paul's writing here, when, when we are divided as a church body, it's because we have lost sight of the significance and the magnificence of the cross of the Lord Jesus. And I'm just going to tell you from my heart, church, I don't ever want to get over it. I'd rather die... And go to be with the Lord who offered up His life for me than ever lived to get over it. I'd rather God shut those doors and we could move on and do something else with our lives than ever see this church get over the power and the wisdom of the cross. But look, Paul's not done. He's not done. He says now in verse number 25 or verse 26, consider your calling. He takes them back to the cross Now he considers them to think. Encourages them to consider and think about their own salvation. He says, "Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards." Now that's kind of insulting, isn't it? Because we thought we were doing okay, Paul. And then you know, not many were powerful. Not many of us were of a noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world. To shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised even things that are not to bring to nothing. Things that are wise so that ultimately nobody is ever going to get to heaven and brag about all they did to get there. That everybody would glorify God. Paul says in these verses that God acted in His wisdom to pass over the powerful, to pass over the strong, to pass over those who thought they had it together and had it all figured out, to come to people that had nothing, to come to people that were not born into good families, to come to people that weren't necessarily real right bright, to come to people that weren't really capable on their own. And God took those people, and God chose those people, and God saved those people for His glory. And thank God the good news in that for us today is that if we ever feel like we have nothing to offer God, We are exactly the kind of people that he wants. He's not looking for people that have a lot to offer him. He's looking for people who have nothing so that he can get the glory in rescuing them. But think about the implications of what Paul teaches here. Paul affirms for us that God chooses people you would never choose. And God uses people you would never use. That's absolutely what Paul is getting at here. And so... When we're fighting, when we're divided, when our boundaries are drawn on other things besides Jesus, it's proving something in our hearts is confused about the God who saves us. Because when we are drawing these boundaries and when we are comparing notes and saying, well, somebody else must not be as spiritual as I am because they don't love the things I do. I wonder if people even read the Bible, or if they've ever met Jesus. Because they don't see things exactly the way that I do. What we're really saying when we have that attitude is that deep in our hearts we have some need to be right. We have a need to be important. We have a need to be smart. We have a need to be powerful. Church, the gospel will never produce pride. And pride will never be compatible with the gospel. Because you have exactly nothing to be proud of. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1 and verse number 11 that the Lord Jesus came to his own, his own received him not. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those people were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, even more stoutly, he says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Paul says, for all of your division and all your pride and all the things you want to take credit in, listen, you can't take credit for anything but your sin. The only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that you needed to be saved from. And God contributed the mercy that saved you. So let's think. If we find ourselves being divided from other Christians, let's think for a moment. Let's do a little thought experiment about why we are where we are tonight. Have you ever wondered about that? Why are you saved and your next door neighbor isn't? Why are you a believer and your brother or sister and your family member, why not? Why are you a Christian and they aren't? How do you answer that question? You say, well, it's because I made a better choice than they did. I'm a Christian, they're not, because I'm just you know, a little smarter. i got a little more sense than they did. I'm, I'm more moral. I'm somehow better. Paul says, no. You are a believer because God in His mercy has done something for you that He has not done for them. Now, I don't understand his purposes in not doing it for them. I pray that he does. But I do know his purpose in doing it for you so that he would receive glory. And here's the real problem. In all of our church division, listen to me, that if we think we have something to be proud of, then we have something to fight over. We don't have anything to be proud of. Why? Look at what Paul says. Because of him are you in Christ Jesus. The reason you are in the body of Christ is because of God. And God has made this Christ Our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. God made Jesus everything to us. He's given every bit of this to us as a free gift, and we have nothing to brag about. And so Paul finishes again in chapter number 2, where he started. My same brothers, when I came to you, I wanted to preach this message of this cross in a way that you would never be distracted from Jesus Paul had made a conscious choice when he went to Corinth that the only message that will change these people, the only message that will save the world, the only message that is worth hearing is the message of Jesus on a cross, dying in weakness and rising in power. Paul said, That's the only thing that I had to say to you because it's the only thing that would communicate to you faith and the Spirit and the power of God. So Paul made a choice. I just want you to know this evening that you have a choice. And the choice is that in every meeting you sit in as part of Sharon Heights Baptist Church, you have a choice. Am I going to be a distraction from the gospel? Or am I going to do everything I can to put everybody's eyes on Jesus? You have a choice with every song that we sing. Am I going to be a distraction from the cross? Or am I going to sing for the glory of the Lord so that people's eyes would be on Him? You have a choice in every sermon that you hear. You have a choice in every decision that we make. And that choice comes down to this. Do I want to be seen to satisfy some need in me to be powerful, important, or smart? Or do I want Jesus to be seen because He's the one who did it all for me? And He alone is my wisdom and my righteousness and my sanctification. That's the choice before us today. Now, we're going to stand together. And I know... In an invitation to a message like this, nobody wants to come to an altar because we think that means that we've been divisive in the church. But maybe some of you have been lately. Maybe it's just been in your heart. It hasn't come out in your words or your attitude yet. But maybe it has. What you need to do tonight is two things. You need to repent to the Lord. And you need to go to those people you've offended and you need to say, listen, I'm sorry way I've treated you because I've distracted all of us from the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Maybe as you've been thinking tonight about your own calling, you've thought, you know, I had absolutely nothing to offer God and He gave me everything when He gave me Jesus. And you just want to say, Lord, thank you. It'd be appropriate to do that. Let me pray for us as a church and then we'll sing. Lord, there's not a person here that loves you that ever wants to see our church divided. But God, we get confused because we just want everybody to be like us. And we get divided when we get mad because people aren't like us. And then we're in this. God, I pray you would spare us from so much division and so much discord that's in so many churches. Help us always to be focused on the cross of the Lord Jesus. Where you embarrassed the wisdom of this world by displaying your wisdom. Where you embarrassed the strength of this world by displaying your power. Help us always be focused on Christ. God, I pray that our church would not live a minute longer than our focus on Jesus. Let's never be distracted. I pray you would grant repentance where it's necessary, Let people do the hard work of seeking forgiveness and forgiving tonight. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.